Job 1. Two weeks ago we had a book sermon on Job. Last week we focused on Christmas a little bit, had a bit of emphasis uh, switch, and certainly we will um, be talking about something different on New Year as well, as you can see from your your calendar for the month. So we're going to be kind of jumping into Job a bit sporadically as we begin. However, uh, today we will start officially into our exposition of Job and Job 1. We will be looking at verses 1 through 12 today, and the title of the message, if you have the notes there, you'll see it's The Reality of Spiritual Warfare. You know, back in high school, um, when I used to think I was pretty smart, I found myself being somewhat of a chess player. Chess was designed to be a a thinker's game, uh, a game strongly dependent upon understanding and forethought. Each player has 16 pieces. There are 64 checkered squares on the board and six different piece types in the game of chess, each piece type having different abilities with which to war against your opponent who has the same pieces, the same abilities, the same number on this 64 checkerboard game board. Now chess was meant to be, for lack of a better term, a game that was simulating warfare. You had the king and the queen and the bishop and the pawn. You had a priest, the bishop priest. You had the, the rooks or the castles. And each one of these pieces, the knights, uh, each one had their various abilities, their various skills, their various ways in which they could be used with the particular goal in mind of either trapping or eventually destroying your opponent's king. Now, when you think about a chessboard, you recognize that each movement is strategic. You don't move a piece on a chessboard with just that one move in mind. As a matter of fact, many chess players have dozens of moves ahead in mind. And as they see what their opponent is doing, they counter what their opponent is doing with a new strategy that might put them dozens of different moves ahead than what they just thought a moment ago they were going to do. And so it's a back and forth game of strategy. And as those pieces meet each other, the simulation is intended to be a battle whereby one piece is battling against another piece and only one comes out victorious. As we think about this and as we think about war, we recognize that victory or defeat in any given battle does not give you victory or defeat in the war. You can lose certain pieces on the chessboard almost intentionally or sometimes quite intentionally because your broader plan might cause you to sacrifice a piece. As we think about war in general, we recognize that various battles are fought in a war. The loss of one battle might not necessarily reflect the loss of a war, though sometimes battles can very well turn the tide in a war. War's immediate objective, though, through various means, is to win each battle. As you win each battle, you get closer to winning the war. We often see in the New Testament the life of a believer described as a life of warfare. As believers, we have been saved by grace through faith. The victory, the warfare, the war, as it were, is won. However, the express purpose of our salvation is that we might give glory to God. We might glorify 
God, bringing Him utmost honor. And it is then our privilege and responsibility to live our, out our Christian life with that goal in mind. Within this Christian warfare illustration, each opportunity to glorify God, each opportunity to obey God, becomes an individual battle over this enemy that we face with the intent of winning the spiritual war of giving glory to God. And where there's war, there's an enemy. Where there's an enemy, there's a battleground. Where there's an enemy in a battleground, there is certainly as well an advocate, a general. And that's what we're going to look at today from Job chapter 1. Now there's many things that we could look at in Job. Certainly throughout the weeks we will look at many things. Job 1, 1 through 12 introduces us to numerous concepts, numerous people, numerous places. We'll talk about them all, but what I would like us to focus on this morning is this concept of warfare. Specifically, spiritual warfare. The spiritual warfare going on in the life of Job. And why would we do such a thing? Pastor, why would you spend this first lesson looking at spiritual warfare? Well, because the book of Job apart from showing us the goodness of God in the midst of man's suffering, is a book that is defined by a spiritual battle. And that's what we see in Job 1. We see that Job's circumstances are not simply the trials of life. They're not random. They're not uncalculated. The, they're not just a stroke of bad luck. This was an attack by Satan. That's what Job is. The book of Job is reflecting an attack by Satan and the perspective of a man and the reaction of a man to that attack and the attempt of a man to bring glory to God in the eyes of angels, demons, and other men as well. And we need to be thinking about the book of Job this way. We need to remember Job 1, 1 through 12 as we're walking through this book together. We need to begin seeing in our own lives that trials and temptations and problems that we face on a daily basis are spiritual battlegrounds upon which we have the opportunity to battle victoriously for God's glory in our lives. To battle Satan's attempts to slander God and God's glory through the reaction of God's people to troubled times. And when we do begin to see life's circumstances as a spiritual battleground, when we do begin to see that our godly responses to life's trials are opportunities not only to obey God, but to glorify God, it will change the way we fight those spiritual battles. And so today we'll look at three elements of these spiritual battles. Three elements of the spiritual battles that we face in our lives through trials, temptations, and troubles. Look with me if you would in Job 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred she-asses and a very great household. So that all his man, uh, all, excuse me, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so that 
excuse me, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Our first element, our first point this morning, verses 1 through 5, is that you are a spiritual battleground. You are a spiritual battleground. The book of Job begins with an introduction to the character of this man who is named Job. This introduction is extremely important for us to understand because it introduces us to his character and therefore introduces us to important lessons about spiritual battles. And the first lesson we see in chapter 1, verse 1, is that the battleground is not necessarily a battle about sin. The battleground is not necessarily a battle about sin. The scriptures use two adjectives to describe the character of the man Job. The first adjective it uses is this word perfect. Now, when we think of the word perfect in American culture, we think of the idea of something that is flawless. That's not really what the word perfect meant at the time of the writing, particularly of the King James Bible. This word perfect in the King James defines that which is complete, that which is entire, that which has everything it is need that it needs. So it is not reflecting sinlessness. It is not reflecting flawlessness. It is reflecting completion. Job was a man who was complete. He had a proper and balanced relationship with God. The second word used here is the word upright. The Hebrew word behind this English translation is literally straight or correct. The idea is that he was not just a man who was complete, not just a man who had a balanced relationship with God, but he was also a man that lived a life that was morally upright before God. He was not a man who lived his life devoted to earthly pleasures, devoted to himself, but rather he was devoted to humble service to his God through careful observance of God's revealed will and through personal discipline and temperance. So Job was a man who was perfect and Job was a man who was upright. This is the introduction of the character of Job. Now, in order to give us a greater understanding of what these two uh, adjectives mean to us and what they meant in the life of Job, there are two deeper descriptions of Job and the determinations of his heart found in the second half of that verse. It says that he was one that feared God and eschewed evil. He feared God. The scripture uses the term fear of God or fear of the Lord to describe a person who lives his life in light of the proper reverence that is due unto God's name. We sang this morning, immortal, invisible, God only wise. We sang, holy, holy, holy. We uh, quoted the scripture that said to give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. These are the thoughts in the life of a man who fears God. This is a man who tempers his passions, who tempers his lusts, who lives his life in such a way that he remembers that God is a holy God. And he lives in reverence to that God. That is a man that fears God. The man that fears God is a man that understands God's hatred for sin, is fearful to place himself in the path of sin or in a situation where he is approving or doing something that God hates. 
And so he purposes in himself to obey God, to conform himself to the word of God, because he does not want to be doing things that are against God's will. That is the fear of God. So Job was a man who was perfect and upright. He feared God. And then it says he eschewed evil. Eschewed is a word that literally means to avoid or to reject. He avoided that which he deemed wrong in the eyes of God. The description is really just the other side of the coin as we consider the concept of fearing God. A man that fears God is a man who recognizes what God loves, what God hates, and he seeks to eschew that which God hates. He seeks to eschew evil. If it's evil, if it's wrong, he doesn't want anything to do with it because he's on God's side. That is the man that fears the Lord and eschews evil. The man who is perfect and upright. Now it is imperative, it is imperative, ladies and gentlemen, as we continue through the book of Job, that we remember Job 1.1. That Job was a man who feared God and eschewed evil. That Job was a man who is perfect and upright. As those who believe in God, we are those who would believe that God is in control. Now, if God is in control, then he has the power over trial and trouble and temptation, does he not? Well, then if God is in control and God has the power over trial and temptation and trouble, then perhaps we begin to feel like if God is in fact in control, then why would he bring trial and temptation and trouble into the lives of those with whom he delights? This is not a characteristic that we would normally think of in human form. We would not think of God, uh, if, if we would not think of a man bringing trial and temptation and trouble into the life of one with whom he delights. And so we take that and we impose it upon God and we say, well, it wouldn't make sense that God, being a good and loving God, uh, allowing trouble and trial and temptation upon those with whom he delights. And so we then carry that logic through to its conclusion that says, well, then anytime there's trouble in a person's life, it must be linked to sin. And this is a scriptural theological fallacy. To say that God would only allow trouble, trial, and temptation into the life of those who are sinning in some way is incorrect. And one of the greatest ways that we know that this is incorrect, other than the various times that we see trial and trouble in the New Testament being presented as the consequences of righteousness in a man's life, is through this book of Job. Because Job was a man who was perfect and upright he was a man who feared God and he eschewed evil and he is going to go through some of the most troublesome times we could possibly imagine on this earth. The lesson of Job's character is that these trials and tribulations come not only to those that are being punished for sin or chastened for sin but also upon the righteous. That trouble falls upon the sinful and the righteous alike. Now, that being said, we must recognize and we all know that there are troubles that come into our lives that are as a result of sin, are there not? That sin does bring trouble. Relationship troubles are often caused by personal pride. Money troubles can oftentimes be caused by intemperance, spending money on the wrong things coveting things which uh, we cannot afford. 
And yet when you or a loved one face great trials and temptations and troubles in your life that seem to have no reason for them, when you've searched your heart and you cannot find sin, and yet you say, God, why is this happening? I feel as though you have turned your back on me. What did I do wrong? We must not simply assume that there is some great sin. If we can't find sin. Job was a man who was perfect and upright, a man that feared God and eschewed evil, and yet he had terrible trouble come into his life. And the reason why he had terrible trouble come into his life is because he is a spiritual battleground. And ladies and gentlemen, you are a spiritual battleground as well. You're a spiritual battleground, and that battleground is not necessarily about personal sin. Second, it's not necessarily about personal choices either. Notice he was a man. He had sons and daughters. He had great substance. But as we get to verses 4 and 5, we see that he was a man that was exceedingly pious. He, as best we understand it for the day, and we talked about this a little bit culturally, Job, uh, being in the time of the patriarchs, was the theocratic representative before God for his family. Job, being the leader of his family, was the one that represented his family before God. And so he offered sacrifices to God for his family in case they had sin. And it says at the end of verse 5 that this is something he did continually. That Job was continually offering these sacrifices before God, lest his family might have sinned before God. And he wanted to make sure that there was nothing between him and God, that there was nothing between his children and God, that he was right with God. This was not a man who made terrible personal choices in his life. As I've mentioned already, there are examples of personal choices, personal sinful choices we can make in our lives that bring about the troubles in our lives. If I were to be unfaithful to my wife, that would bring about marital problems. That trouble, that trial in my life would be directly related to sin in my life. If I were to choose to steal money, the problems that I would face, the legal troubles I would face, would be directly related to my sin. And so we cannot deny that there are troubles and trials and difficulties in our lives that are directed and are a direct result of the sins in our lives. But when something comes into our life, maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it is financial struggles. And you look at your life and you say, God, I'm not doing anything that I know is wrong before you. I've kept a short sin account with you. I've confessed my sins when I, when I have uh, sinned before you. I have a, a heart that is right before you as best I know how. Why is this happening to me? Then you're putting one and two together instead of two and two together. You're putting wrong things together. You're assuming that your sin somehow had something to do with this circumstance when in fact it may not have. You're assuming that your personal choices may have led to this circumstance when in fact they have not. The life of Job is a man who was temperate, a man who was pious, a man who loved his children, a man who had enough business sense to raise up a house and a good posterity, a good inheritance to himself. This was not a frivolous man. This was not a man who had poor character. And yet, tragedy came into his life. The battleground that we face is not necessarily a battleground that is directly related to our personal sins. 
The battleground that we face is not necessarily a battleground about our personal choices. You say, well, pastor, if this battle is not necessarily about our sin or about our personal choices, then why do these things come into our lives? Where do these trials and temptations and troubles come from? Well, in verses 6 through 11, we see that we are not only a spiritual battleground, but we have a spiritual enemy. Where there is a battle, there is an enemy. And we see the enemy in verses 6 through 11. Look at them with me. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered and said, Excuse me, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. Verse 6 introduces us to a scene change. We have gone from the life of Job upon this earth to the throne room in heaven. Here we see what are described as the sons of God who have presented themselves before the Lord. Now we ask the question, who are these sons of God? This phrase, sons of God, only appears two times in the Bible. It appears here in Job and it appears in Genesis 6-2. That speaks of the sons of God who, seeing the daughters of men, lusted after them. The phrase appears in the New Testament to describe believers. Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. So we see this particular phrase being used to describe believers in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see it in these two, these two references seeming to designate some sort of created being. And then, of course, we know that there is also the Son of God, who is the divine second person of the Trinity, as... He is born into this world. We call him Jesus Christ. He calls himself the Son of God. You say, well, pastor, this is the sons of God. How is the sons of God different from Jesus Christ being the Son of God? And the best way to describe it is that the sons of God is a term of description where the Son of God is a title. Sons of God is descriptive. Son of God is a title. Sons of God is a descriptive, descriptive term to designate those who have a particular link to God in some fashion. In the Old Testament, we perceive these to perhaps be angelic beings. In Genesis 6-2, there's a great debate that rages over whether the sons of God were those who were of the lineage of Seth, or perhaps they were some angelic being. That's a debate for another day. But whatever the case may be, they had a particular and special link to God. In the New Testament, those who are the sons of God are those who have believed on Jesus Christ unto salvation. We are then called the sons of God. And so it is a descriptive term to describe our special link to God in some way, shape, or form, our link being Jesus Christ. The, in, in Job, we see clearly that these are angelic beings, for they are before the throne of God. In the New Testament, talking about believers. Now, the term son of God... As given to Jesus Christ is not a description of what he is, but a title for who he is. 
Even among other sons of God, even among other creative beings, there is no other son of God. The son of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his title, not his description. And I think the best way to describe this would be through analogy. So I'm going to put someone on the spot here, and I'm just going to hope that this works out. Brother Grismore, could you please tell me the name of the coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers? Do you know? Say it again. Bo Pelini. The name of the coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Now, Mike is a Cornhuskers fan, so I figured he could give me that answer. But in reality, a football team has many coaches, doesn't it? A football team has athletics coaches, conditioning coaches, they have uh, positions coaches, fitness coaches, recruiting coaches, etc. These are descriptive titles. You look at them and you say, these are the coaches for this college team. But when I asked Mike, who is the coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, he did not say, and I was kind of fearful he would, but he did not say, which coach? When I asked him who the coach was, I didn't even say head coach. I just said, who is the coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers? He gave me the name of the head coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Now, why did he do that? Well, see, because there is this descriptive term, coaches. But there is a title. And this title is given to one man. And that man is the coach, the head coach of the team. And he is the coach. Think of it that way when you think of the sons of God versus the son of God. The sons of God is a descriptive title. These are, they have a link to God, be it a spiritual link or a creative link, whatever it is, they have a, a particular link to God. But the son of God is a, is a, is a title of, of designation for one man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I hope that that helps you Understand the difference here between the sons of God and the Son of God. So these sons of God present themselves before the Lord. We don't know why. We don't know what's happening in the throne room. But they're presenting themselves before the Lord. And Satan is one of these sons of God that presents himself. Or perhaps he's not a son of God and he's just with the sons of God. We do not know from scripture. But Satan came with these sons of God to present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord asks him for a report of his activities. To which Satan replies in verse 7 that he has been going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down on it. Now this should not surprise us. We know from 1 Peter 5, 8 that Satan is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. He is upon this earth tempting man, trying man, desiring to keep man uh, away from God, desiring to keep men on that path toward condemnation and away from salvation by grace through faith. And so God speaks to Satan, verse 8, and he says, Hast? Thou considered my servant Job. You've been trying to destroy people, to trip people up, to tempt them, to, to ruin them. Have you considered Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And here we have a plot twist. Not only do we recognize that our sin and our choices aren't always the cause of our trouble, but here, in fact... God is bringing Job's name up. Satan, you're tempting people. You're trying people. You're seeking people whom you may devour. Have you considered my servant Job? God's the one who brought up this trial. God is the one who brought these, the, these trials up. 
He's the one that brought Job into the conversation? Yes. Yes. For his glory, he will allow this. We must understand this about God. Well, this makes God unfair. No, it doesn't. Well, this makes God a terrible God. No, it doesn't. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is worthy of our service and he is worthy of our glory. And if God looks down at you and he sees that he can best be glorified in his servant's life through trial as opposed to through blessing, well then God, here I am. Try me. If that is what can glorify you, try me. That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? God, if your greatest glory can come out of trial and temptation in my life, then glorify yourself through me. We sing songs that ask that, do we not? We ask God to send his refining fire. We ask God to glorify himself through us. But you know, when we think of those things, do we, do we consider the implications of what we're asking God to do? Because sometimes the way God gets the greatest glory out of our lives is not through giving us a cushy job and a nice house and lots of vehicles and lots of clothes in our closet and great family relations. Sometimes the way God is maximized in his glory is to bring trial, temptation, and trouble. And he looks down at you and he says, Love me anyway. Glorify me anyway. Justify my goodness anyway. Because it's on those days where we can't look at our pocketbook, look in our bank account and say, isn't God good? We have to look to God's word and say, isn't God good? It's the days where we have to remember that God is good regardless of man's circumstances. And so sometimes God will, in fact, bring into our lives even suggest to Satan, have you considered my servant? Have you considered, Satan, Legacy Baptist Church? They're a church that loves you and that's doing right. They're a church that's seeking to, to serve God with all of their heart. Have you considered trying to trip them up? Have you considered bringing trial and temptation into that church? Have you considered my servant? That's what God is doing here. Satan says, but you've been protecting them. And we see another great truth of that, that God does protect people. He put a hedge about Job and all that Job had. Satan couldn't touch him. Until God said, well, let's see what happens. Why? Because Satan says, I'll tell you what, God. If you remove that protection from Job, I guarantee you, he will curse you to your face. The only reason why Job loves you, the only reason why Job serves you, is because you are so good to him. The day you withdraw your hand of protection and I am able to touch him, I guarantee you he will curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you have my permission to touch his, li to his, his life, but not him. To touch his his possessions, but you may not touch him. He says in verse 11, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said, verse 12, unto Satan, behold, 
All that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And so we see that we are a spiritual battleground. We see that we have a spiritual enemy. Third and finally, I want us to understand as well, as we look at Job 1.12, that we have a spiritual general. We have a spiritual general. Battles have generals. They are the leaders of their troops. We are fighting a spiritual war. And that war is over us. That war is over culture and various things. But there's a battleground raging in my heart. In your heart. Satan is seeking to deceive. He's seeking to tempt. He's seeking to destroy. But we are not alone in our battle either. God gives Satan permission to touch Job's life. And notice what I said there. He gave Satan permission. And along with this permission, God gave Satan boundaries. What we must understand as we look at this is that at no point, at no process, at no point in this process, excuse me, was God's hand ever out of control. God was in constant control of this situation. God looked down at Job and said, here is a perfect and an upright man, one that loves God, one that eschews evil, one that fears me, and I am going to allow Satan to touch this, the, the material things in his life, but I am not allowing him to touch Job's health or Job's life yet. Job's personal life, his own body, yet. God has put boundaries. God is in complete control over what Satan is doing. God did not change sides. God did not turn his face against Job. God did not one day say, you know, Job, I've had about enough of you. You're just too pious. You need to be brought down a few rungs. I'm just going to start causing trouble in your life. He's not sitting up there laughing as Job is going through trials. He has not turned against Job here. He is still on the side of the righteous. But we must remember that our purpose in this life is to glorify God. And if God can receive maximum glory through trial and through trouble in my life, well then allow it to come and God be praised. We don't want trouble. We don't want trial. We don't want temptation. But when they come, God is still on your side. God is still good. God is still just. God is still righteous. And what God is looking for in that trial, in that trouble, in that temptation, is for the opportunity for you to glorify God, to justify God in the midst of your suffering, or in the midst of the suffering of those whom you love. Now that's enough to say, but it's very very difficult to believe in the midst of suffering, is it not? But we must hear it. We must read it. We must read it again and again and again, and we must believe it, because this is the purpose of the book of Job. It is to show us the goodness of God in the midst of man's suffering. It is to show us that God was never out of control. It is to show us that God is justified in the midst of our troubles and our temptations. It is to show us that God has not left our side as He will not leave Job's side in the midst of Job's suffering. God has not turned against you in trial. God has not turned against you in temptation. He is your leader. He is your general. He is leading you in the battle against Satan and He desires you to be victorious in that battle against your foe. 
And so each individual trial in our lives, temptation, trouble, becomes a spiritual battleground. A spiritual battleground for the glory of God whereby we can glorify Him through obedience or we can disobey and let Satan get the best of us. Because Satan is our great enemy. But we have a general. God the Father who loves us, who is in control of the circumstances that we face. But that doesn't mean that the circumstances don't come. The battle still rages and it is up to each of us to fight that spiritual warfare and to fight with faithfulness. As we close, I would like us to meditate for a moment on what it is that trials, troubles, and tribulations accomplish. In our lives, trial, trouble, tribulation come. In our families, trial, trouble, tribulation comes. In our church, we will face trials, troubles, and tribulations. What do these things do for us? Why would God allow them? Well, they do cause us to search our hearts, do they not? For sin. They cause us to see if maybe there is sin in our lives that would have caused the consequences that we are living out. It might, may serve us to be a wake-up call. Maybe the trials, troubles, and tribulations that our families go through are God trying to tell us, hey, you need to get some things out of your life. Perhaps that is what God is trying to accomplish as He chastens us to Himself. You say, well, pastor, I've searched my heart. There is no sin. I'm right before God. My conscience is not smiting me. I have a clear conscience before God. Well, then perhaps it's causing you to rest in God's sovereignty. As there is trial and tribulation all around you and you can't control any of it, all you can do is fall back on God and let God carry you through. Perhaps it is to cause us to rest in God's sovereignty. Perhaps it's to remind us of our need for God. That was the reason for Paul's great trial and tribulation in 2 Corinthians, his thorn in the flesh. God's response to him as Paul asked for that to be removed was, my grace is sufficient for thee. Paul, you need to remember that I'm sufficient. And so I'm going to give you something in your life that's going to constantly remind you that I'm sufficient for you. Perhaps it's to give others opportunity to serve God by serving you. Maybe the reason God has brought a trouble or a tribulation into your life is so that somebody else who has been asking God for the means by which to serve Him can bless you and thus serve God. Maybe the trial or tribulation in your life is an opportunity for the church to rally around you, to help you, to support you, to lift you up through prayer, through blessing, and then in doing so, the church perhaps might be brought together. The church might become more fitly framed together in Christ as they have the opportunity to, with one accord, bless you and therefore serve God. Maybe God is using you as the catalyst for an entire church growth opportunity in your circumstances. Perhaps it is to bring you to your knees and help purge you of things that are not sinful but are not profitable in your life. Perhaps it is to reveal priorities in your life. Say, well, pastor, I don't have any sin in my life, but you look over your life and you say, you know, I'm not redeeming the time. 
I have things in my life that aren't profitable and maybe there's a trial or a tribulation that will strip from you your free time or will strip from you your discretionary money so that God can remind you of what's truly important. So he can show you of the real priorities in your life. So he can, he can remove some of the dross. And certainly, these trials, troubles, and tribulations in our lives are opportunities for God to be glorified. As we justify God, as we obey God, as we listen to God, as we serve God with our lives. And this is just a small list of six possibilities of why it would be that God could look down upon your life or my life or the Church of Legacy Baptist and look at Satan and say, Have you considered my servant? Have you considered touching their life with trouble? Touching their life with tribulation? Touching their life with trial? Have you considered them? And maybe Satan says, God, I've looked at Legacy Baptist before, but you've got a hedge protecting that church. You've got a, a protective barrier around it. I can't touch it. And God says, okay, I'm going to remove that hedge. Satan says, if you do, they're going to curse you to your face. And God says, we'll see. And it might be an opportunity for Legacy Baptist Church to glorify God through trial, through trouble, through tribulation. It might be an opportunity for your life to glorify God. May these possibilities grant us perspective as we're looking through the book of Job, certainly. But may it grant us perspective in our own lives as well. In our own trials and troubles and tribulations. We may not know why it is God brought it into our lives. But we can know this for sure. God is in control. God is on the side of the righteous. And God desires to be glorified through your life. Let's pray together.